Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. The voice of Rob Report has always been one of respect and love and adoration for these amazing products and what they mean, what they mean for people's lives. What I did notice is that the common denominator between the people that were wealthy and happy and the people that were wealthy and unhappy was their take on generosity and how their wealth was incorporated into their lives. We live in times where, you know, you look at uh, any news media that you, you follow and it makes you feel like we're, we're a divided people. We're, we're not a divided people. All you need to do is to pour a great scotch uh, with somebody to understand that there's more to love about people than there, there is. There is, there is, there is. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Dan Curtis. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at Rob vices. So like many of you listening, you've read the Rob Report magazine. For me, it was the ultimate in entrepreneurial porn as I was growing up. It allowed me to dream big and get really inspired. Well, Dan's dad was the creator of that magazine. But like most things, the market shifted on them And the culture just stopped reading magazines and started using apps and things like that. So Dan had the foresight to see this and he shifted the company into a luxury goods subscription model that for around 1500 bucks, you can get three to $500 every month of these unique one of a kind luxury items with this beautiful book that comes along with it. I got my first box. I was blown away by it. And we're going to get into all of that in a minute. But I want to remind you that my 2019 mastermind is officially underway. We are now half sold out. If you want to be a part of this, now is the time to fill out an application. Go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com. Fill out the application. We'll jump on a call, see if it's a good fit for you and our current group. So think about the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. We're heading to Boston, Monaco, and Florence in 2019 for some amazing experiences. And the second part is the mastermind itself, where our group of 25 people will help you accelerate what you want to achieve or help you figure out what's next for you in life. Okay, you can find Dan on the socials at Rob Vices. Be sure to take a screenshot of this episode, share it on the socials, and remember to tag me and at Rob Vices and let us know what you thought. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with Dan Curtis. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Rob. You know what, man? I am so freaking excited to do this with you. There's so much I want to cover. And uh, first of all, I just want to thank you for taking the time to do this. I know you not you have a lot going on in your life right now. Oh, yeah. But this is a pleasure. Awesome. Awesome. So I think a good starting off point would be sort of to wind the clock back a bit to growing up in Malibu uh, in the 90s. 
Maybe you can kind of just paint a picture or just give me an idea. What sorts of things did you do, say, as a teenager there? Oh, yeah. You know, it was tough growing up on the beach of Malibu. I had to fight my way out. How did you, how'd you get through it? <laughs> Honestly, Malibu is an incredible place. It's, a, it's actually a, a very emotional thing right now because as we're talking, Malibu's really been struggling with uh, these horrific fires um, that have hit really a, a very tight-knit community. And so that, that, that really was what Malibu has always been for me. It's, it's the community, the people, these amazing teachers and educators that, uh, uh, that live in this neighborhood and just people who love life. And it, it's, yeah, we've got plenty of us who are surfers, but Mal- Malibu is just a warm community to grow up in and had incredible friends and incredible people behind me. And sure, there's celebrities all over the place and, you know, a lot of my friends in high school came from high profile families, but there's a lot of just normal people as well. And people who made it out West and love to surf and, and love to be able to look out into the ocean when they're, you know, watching their kids play football. I mean, I, I can't even, you know, I grew up in Queens and I know you're in New York and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but I can't even imagine what it's like to graduate Malibu High School. I mean, I have this fantasy in my mind. I feel like it's, you know, me and Rob Lowe and we're hanging out with Brooke Shields and, you know, we're surfing and like, is it like that? You know, the Hollywood picture of Malibu has actually only really started to come into fruition in more recent years. You know, when uh, Nobu went from being a sleepy little locals restaurant in the Country Mart to being the highest grossing restaurant in California, right on the water with Soho House next to it. So there's been a lot more of that that new, you know, celebrity take on on Hollywood. Growing up, it was it was a pretty chill place, you know. We uh I played football. We we didn't really think of ourselves as being that that weird being from Malibu. And it's a tight knit community that has, you know, wonderful warm people and plenty of you know, musicians and uh, actors and, uh, you know, celebrities and politicians, you know, had places there, but, uh, you know, they're all normal people. And I think that's kind of the thing that, uh, you know, people think about Hollywood, they think about Malibu and, you know, they look at these celebrities and often not, they're just normal people with normal problems, normal joys, and they're also great people. And they're they're working on building things, and family is important to them. And uh, I've always felt that that Malibu was a family kind of place. So, I guess the question is: you you know you were surrounded by a ton of you know we'll call them affluential high end people because it's Malibu. But your dad started a publishing company called Kurtco in the mid eighties, which is best known for the Rob Report. Did all of your friends know that your family was behind the Rob Report? And did everybody think you had like, you know, $100 million jets and million dollar watches and yachts just laying around everywhere? In other words, was there a lot of pressure to live your life like the magazine? Yeah, I think pressure is probably the wrong word. It's more about the privilege. I had the chance to grow up... Uh, with a little bit of a platinum spoon in my mouth, I, I will I will absolutely admit to that, and I am grateful for it. I mean, as an example, I remember when uh, Bentley 
dropped off in Arnage convertible uh, when I was 16 at the Rob Report office. And, you know, the editors checked it out. They did their thing. And then my, you know, my father called me up and he said, hey, you want to take this for a spin? And I said, sure. So at 16 years old, I hopped in the Bentley, grabbed my three best friends. And, you know, we rolled down to PCH to Gladstones and had lunch. And uh, <laughs> a bunch of 16-year-olds just rocking a, a Bentley convertible. So there, you know, there have been those kinds of perks with Rob Report gave uh, some pretty amazing access to play with the coolest toys in the world. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, even before I, I joined the family business, uh, just getting to know the people that made these things. And so got to know the people behind the best cigars in the world and the jets and the cars and the, the big boats and the, the fine wines. And I got to say, it's, it's an addictive group of people to spend your time with. You know, when, when you spend time with people who are the best at what they do and make these things that are, you know, those iconic things that you work for, it, it becomes the, the only, you know, profession you would ever want to have. You have to be connected with these things. So I fell in love with it all from an early age. I bet, you know, I had the privilege of having uh, dinner with your dad uh, and a group of other people. And he was telling a story about when you were a kid, which I, I know you're probably shuddering to, you know, hear your dad tell a story about you when you were a kid, but he was telling a story. And um, I guess you guys had a home that was sort of, it lent itself to echoes. And he was upstairs and you guys were downstairs and, you know, it was around high school time and he was, he was saying that, you know, he told all the other parents, look, we're going to have the kids over the house. They're going to be drinking. I'm letting you know in advance, they're going to be drinking. And so you guys, you, you're down with, uh, you know, your buddies, your football friends, and you're drinking downstairs, they're upstairs and they overhear you guys talking about trust funds. And, you know, one kid's saying, I got a $10 million thing, a $20 million trust fund. And it comes to you and you said, well, I don't have shit. <laughs> my, dad, my dad's not giving me anything. So tell me a little bit about how your dad parented you in that way to sort of insulate you from, I don't know, succumbing to that, that world that nobody wants to have their kid be in. I'll start by saying uh, I have an amazing dad who is my best friend and uh, has given me more than I can ever ask for in any capacity of how that can be you know, construed. But from the beginning, he's always told me, Daniel, I'm going to spend every last one of my dollars and I'm going to take one from you and then die owing you money. <laughs> 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 and honestly, I'm delighted by that. I mean, it's uh, there's always been a great lesson in just watching my father. And my father is very much a, a self-made man in, in what he's built and what he's created for our family. And he also taught me the joy of building things. And, you know, he, he's been a very hard worker his entire life. And, you know, really, he, he jammed uh, all through... The, er the early days of our, our life. And I never felt for a minute that I didn't have enough of my father around because he really made the time when he was there, you know, high quality time. Uh, but when I got old enough to drive, uh, that ended up being, you know, a great way for me to come and just spend time, you know, where my father was at the office. And I'd join him on meetings and I'd come along on some of the business trips and just spend quality time participating in what he was doing. And, 
uh, it, it really developed a, an interest in the business and a love for, you know, what he did. And, uh, you know, I, watching him operate, whether it was hosting events or cater to our clients really, you know, taught me the joy that you can have when you're building something and you're working hard and it, it becomes something that you love. I actually found him to be incredibly honest about his uh, shortcomings, about his failures in a very uh, teaching kind of way. So I love to hear from your perspective about how much he meant to you because I'm like, I wonder if he's really like this in real life because he was so interesting to me. Uh, he's a he's a fascinating guy and he he will be his own biggest critic and I am definitely his biggest advocate. He, he's a guy that is thoughtful with every way that he communicates. And he genuinely cares about everyone around him, which I think is why he was so successful in creating this media business where it was all about connecting people and brands in a variety of capacities. Um, He has an amazing way to understand what somebody else is going through and problem solve and really cares about solving those problems. And we've really taken that you know, that thought process and the idea of, you know, in business, what you, you really need to be is a problem solver for your client. You're a solutions partner. And he takes an interest in, in everybody that was, you know, ever around him, you know, talking about, uh, the, the parties and the echoes at home. You know, I learned from my father, there is uh, there's a lot of joy to be had when you're playing host. There's nothing more fun than getting people together in celebration. And yes, I took advantage of the fact that uh, I grew up in a, in a house that had plenty of places to, to hang out right on the beach. And uh, we took it a little bit too far sometimes. And, you know, you always hear about these, you know, stories of parents go away for a, a weekend trip uh, only to come home early to see that their kid has thrown uh, a massive party. We had one night where my parents went away for, to a movie. They just went out to the movies and things got out of hand. I had a few people over. It turned into 200 people over at our house drinking. <laughs> 200? Yeah. While they were, in, at, while they were while, at the movies? While they were at the movies. <laughs> so there was no way getting out of that one. Oh um, my. So you you, you probably had lot. every kid in Malibu. But, uh, Malibu's not that big. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, that, that was definitely an interesting one. So after 2007, uh, after college, you joined the family business and you started working at the Rob Report. Can you describe what it was like working there? You know, I have the image of what the magazine is, but I don't know what it's like actually working in the ma- working in the area that produces the magazine. Like, what what was it like working there? Yeah, I'd love to tell you that all we did was fly around in Gulf Streams and sip on Dom Perignon. Right, that's uh, my you image. Know, th- th- there were a few of those perks, and every now and then, um, but it. It was, it's a, a media business and, uh, the, the magazine business is based off of two pillars of editorial and advertising. It was, we, we had a company that was split between Malibu, uh, where my father was. And I went and joined the New York office, which was really the, the business development, the advertising side of the business. And it was made very clear that if I was going to join the very, the business, I was going to start on the lowest rung of the ladder and work my way up, uh, which is what I did. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing place to be, and media is it's a phenomenal business. Of course, it's been changing so much, but 
being in an editorial business where you're really always looking for what's next, what's new is an inspiring place. And, you know, being in the magazine business where you're constantly putting up, a, you know, putting out a new issue of a magazine is definitely a grind. Uh, but we always had an amazing team who really believed and loved what we did. And it was, it's, it was an easy thing to fall in love with. I mean, a Rob Report, the, the mission is to uncover the most spectacular luxury products and experiences that are available to people who have the time to enjoy them, the taste to enjoy them, and yes, the ability to afford them. And being in that world is just, you know, it is intoxicatingly fun. You know, get, getting a, a sense to, to meet the people that build the biggest yachts in the world and design the fastest cars uh, is, is a really, really cool way to spend your time. And we were very proud of that editorial mission that we had. And we were able to create a readership that was devoted and really just loved the magazine. There was never, there's never any uh, negative editorial. So, you know, there's, there's some brands that, you know, they do number ratings and, and rankings, you know, people will get a, a bad review. Of course, in newspapers, you know, if you're putting out a, a Broadway play, you're living in fear of the Times giving you a bad review. The voice of Rob Report has always been one of respect and love and adoration for these amazing products and what they mean, what they mean for people's lives. And it was an easy thing to be very proud about what we created. And of course, a lot of the things that we wrote about, most nobody, you know, nobody can really afford. Um, but there's plenty of things that were in the pages of the magazine uh, that most people can't afford. And, you know, everything else is there to help remind you of the spoils of your success when, you know, you really hit it out of the park. What does it feel like for you walking through an airport and seeing the Rob report? And just to give you some perspective, you know, I'm 52. For me, as an entrepreneur, I'll kind of just call myself an entrepreneur for the sake of this conversation. It was entrepreneurial porn for me. You know what I mean? Like I was more interested in getting, you know, in my adolescence, I was more interested in, you know, saving up my money to get the Rob report than it was for me to get Playboy. You know, to be completely honest with you, like <laughs> I just freaking like I just geeked out on it. You know, yeah. What does it feel like for you? You know, like I don't know, like walking through an airport and seeing that magazine sitting there. Uh, pride. I mean, honestly, and mm -hmm. walking through an airport. You know, it's funny. I'd, I, I, I would check the placement. I'd see, uh, you know, where they had put the Rob report on the newsstand. And if I didn't like it, if I thought it was, you know, too low or too out of sight, I'd, I'd move it around and shuffle some <laughs> magazines around. <laughs> I mean, hey, I lady, you should buy this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would look at this magazine and every issue I'd, I'd well up with pride. And I was one, you know, uh, I was a small part of a team that would put this magazine out and every issue made me proud. I, I devoured every issue. I, I would read it cover to cover. Uh, the editor-in-chief at the time, Brett Anderson, was uh, a mentor to me and would I'd ruminate on the, on the editor's letter. And it really became part of my identity. Of course, um, you know, being in a, a business like that, which was very different from all my friends who are in finance or consulting or law, the Rob Report really became my identity. And it also became a, a, an amazing way that, you know, with that being my identity and the access to these things that I had, I could share something interesting to people with people that I cared about. And I had an interesting story to tell. 
was amazing cocktail fo- party fodder. I mean, if you when you go to a cocktail party and everybody's talking about, oh, what do you do? What do you do? When I say, oh, you know, we, we published the, the Rob Report magazine. It lights up conversation right away. Oh, are you so, kidding me? That yeah. must have been incredible. Why was it called the Rob Report, by the way? It's really an invented name. Uh, it started in, the Rob Report was founded in 1976 by a guy named Rusty White. And I think he really just thought that uh, Rob sounded a little bit fancier than Rusty. <laughs> so Interesting. And he put two Bs on it. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. How do you think about wealth now that you have your own family? Has your view changed? Going back to your question about growing up in Malibu, I did have a very early look at what wealth looked like. Uh, I had many friends that had houses that were worth many millions of dollars. And I knew many people who had every material thing that you could ask for. Some of these people were tremendously happy. Some of these people were tremendously unhappy. And it was very clear to me, you know, having the opportunity with where I grew up and then growing up within Rob Report Magazine, that money is not the answer to happiness. But what I did notice is that the common denominator between the people that were wealthy and happy and the people that were wealthy and unhappy was their take on generosity. And how their wealth was incorporated into their lives. If you look at the happiest people that you come across, I think no matter how much money that they have, it it really comes down to it's what is in their life, what how are they built in their businesses, in their personal lives, where they can give things away. And there's a lot of ways that you can be generous. You can be generous with your time, you can be generous with your insight and your wisdom. Uh, of course, you can be generous with your money and the easiest way to be generous is to have a lot of financial success and money and to share that generously. And I think that's really, I mean, that the biggest reason I could think of why anybody should work hard to make money is because it makes it be, it makes it easier to be generous. If you approach your wealth that way, then I think it's going to really be meaningful. What a great answer. You and I both share getting married in Italy. I got married in Amalfi, uh, and you got no married kidding. in Ravello. Yeah, yeah, we were married just one town apart. Exactly. Why Italy? So from a young age, I, uh, I had an interest in art history. You know, I was a, a young sculptor. It was a, a hobby of mine and really just started to pay attention to you know, the great masters and ended up studying in a, a small town called Ferrara when I was uh, in, in college. And Where the marble is, right? Yeah, uh, that's that's Carrera. So Carrera, Ferrara, okay. Ferrara is really where they they invented lasagna, and it's in that um, area where, right next to Bologna, where all the best pastas in the world have originated from. And my my now wife, who was a friend at the time, and we were just you know we were kind of pen pals at the time, and I was talking about what was going on, and she decided to come visit me on my spring break. And we went south. And it was actually in the, the streets of Ravello where, you know, my, my friend at the time, you know, just kind of looked at her and I grabbed her and I kissed her. And we then started dating as, uh, as kids. I was 20 and she was 19. Um, I've actually known my wife since we were, we're 15. We met in Malibu. 
so that place, you know, ended up having a, a special meaning for us. And we walked around and, you know, she had mentioned, you know, this would be like the most amazing place to get married. So when I, I proposed to her now, I think that would have been six years ago. And we we're talking about where we should get married. It was one of the, the top choices. And it was a, a pretty special place, as you know very well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely uh, incredible. I'm trying to think of the name of the hotel that we did our, we had our um, our uh, night before dinner, whatever that's called, uh, reception, you know, before the wedding in Ravello mm-hmm. at uh, a hotel. God, it was the most beautiful freaking hotel. I'm going to have to get the name of it. It was absolutely incredible uh, with like an infinity pool that looked over uh, the town. I mean, it's just... Probably the Palazzo Sasso. That Sasso, that's it. Oh, it's driving me crazy. Yeah. The Sasso, that's exactly. We got married at La Sirenis. Nice. Which was incredible. And, and we did our, our, you know, our pre-thing there. It's just incredible. But you're also fluent in Italian, yeah? Abbastanza bene. I definitely need Abbastanza. to practice a bit more. Um, uh-huh. but, uh, yeah, no, I, I can still hang. Io non parlo bene. Not so good. Not so good. I I just, you know, I don't know what it is, but I, every year on my goal list, I write down, learn Italian and I've been doing it for 10 years and I pick it up and I put it down and I pick, it's so hard if you're not in the culture to learn it, you know, when you're learning, especially when you're not, you know, very young, you've got to train yourself to think in Italian. And so how I learned uh, in a short period of time is I took a few classes, of course, before studying abroad in Italy. But when I was there, I was studying in this small town where I was the only American guy in this town of Italy. It was a small, this is not like Florence or Rome where you get a lot of tourists. Uh, It was a beautiful place, but very much the local village. And so I made local friends and I had no choice if I wanted to hang out with everybody, but to learn the language. And I just walked around, I listened, I got CDs and I listened to Italian rock. Uh, some of it was great. Some of it was terrible, but learned a lot of great lines and it ended up being a great way to start thinking in Italian, which is what you need to do. Why did you leave Malibu for New York? You're not going to take over the world in Malibu. Mm. You, uh, you know, you, I, ha- I had to leave Malibu in order to earn my way back in. <laughs> wow. So. That's so cool. <laughs> well, I that mean, is so cool. I could totally see that. I mean, I have a lot of great friends um, who have amazing lives. And of course, why would they ever leave Malibu? And they're, they're doing their thing. But I, I certainly learned from my father and uh, the business that we were in, uh, the reasons to be ambitious. And I have always been attracted to New York City. And I've been several, you know, several times with my father. And going to the New York office rather than working in the Malibu office, uh, was also a way that I could really work on my own and, and create my own professional identity. Um, cause there was a little bit of distance between my father and me there. And I, again, I, I worked my way up from the bottom. The first project that I, I had when I joined the company, uh, back in 2007 was, uh, assisting the team that was 
uh, going to launch robreport.com as a business. At the time, all robreport.com did was sell magazine subscriptions. Mm-hmm. And so I showed up in New York City, stars in my eyes, and you know, ready to go. And my first order of business was running around to all the luxury businesses out there, Tiffany's and Tom Ford and Ralph Lauren and uh, Moa Hennessy and saying, guys, the future of you know content is going to be online. And most of them looked at me and basically laughed. They said, Rob Report, why would you even have a website? Luxury isn't online. Luxury is only in magazines. And it's amazing how in about 18 short months, everything changed. Uh, there were a lot of luxury brands at the time that had no websites of their own. And they didn't think it was appropriate to be luxury and be online. And so it was that effort and launching robreport.com that got me into the business development side of, of what we did at Robreport. And it also quickly really got me into New York City. And I was hooked from the beginning. And what year was that? That was 2007. So I've, okay, uh, so I've you've been, been there since? I've been there since. It's, been, it's become a, a, a part of who I am. People used to know me as Malibu Dan, and now I feel like I'm uh, just as much New York as I am Malibu. And uh, th- this is a very special place. Do you see yourself going back to Malibu? I have two young kids now, and uh, all their grandparents are, are back in the West Coast. So we're actually very actively looking at moving back to Malibu, West LA uh, right now. We're going to be neighbors. I, I live in Atlanta now, but I'm moving to uh, Manhattan Beach. So I'm, I'm going to be heading that way myself. Excellent. All right. So I'd like to talk about your latest project, which is Rob Vices. So in 2015, you started a weekly newsletter called Rob Vices. What is Rob Vices and why did you start it as a newsletter? So as I you know, worked my way up in the family business of Rob Report, I had a few different roles. I ended up taking care of a, lot of, of a lot of our top clients. I really focused on developing the wine and spirits category of Rob Report. I have always had a great fondness and curiosity for spirits and wines. And I also worked on new applications of how we tell stories. And one thing that would always piss me off is that my friends, who started to do very well, and had uh, the ability to afford the things that you read about in Rob Report. I know I mentioned that, you know, or I'd, I'd meet somebody and I'd say, um, I'm Daniel Curtis from the Rob Report. They say, oh, Rob Report. That's that, you know, cool magazine that my dad reads. And so I, I wanted the, the brand to transcend that age gap, age gap. I wanted to find a way that our editorial would communicate with that next generation of luxury consumer. And so focused on building what we did in events, which has always been important to younger people who are uh, consuming content and focused on our digital platform and our apps and was really looking for that hook where, you know, print would still make that connection because people like the tactile experience of editorial. They like reading a magazine. They're just not used to buying them anymore. And so I was thinking, how do we get our editorial in front of people in a way where they're really going to be engaged and they're going to think of picking up this magazine? So 
you know, around the time that this was really top of mind, uh, one of my very good friends from college, one of my former roommates, uh, came to New York City, uh, a gentleman named Chris Davis, and he had just started a business called Loot Crate, which is a hilarious box of random Halo, Mario, Star Wars, Star Trek, Marvel toys and socks and you know comic books and knickknacks. And he showed me this and he said, this is going to be the subscription box for gamers and geeks. And I looked at it and it just occurred to me how brilliant this was. And he had an amazing demographic that he he really catered to because people are very passionate about, you know, comic book and comic books and all of this content. Of course, now Marvel Universe is the most successful thing happening in cinema right now. And uh, the great Stan Lee just passed. And so the world, you know, is mourning, but there's this amazing connection that he created. And it occurred to me that what he was doing was, it's not just stuff in a box, it's media. A light turned on. And I I saw that, wow, this is a way that we can tell stories that is going to be tremendously engaging. So started working on what a luxury subscription box would be. At the time, I had a newsletter called Rob Vices. It was a weekly newsletter where I took a little bit of a different take on the voice that we had with Rob Report and focused it on a little bit of a younger demographic. I called it Rob Vices because when you ask most people, what are the luxuries that are most important to you? The first thing they're going to say is family. And then they're going to say, you know, I really love good wine and I love to travel and I'm a foodie. I love food. That's what this generation cares about right now. And it's those vices. It's those things. It's that taking the personal time. It's the, the, the great stuff in your glass. It's that dish, that rich Wagyu beef or whatever it is that you, you know, you savor after that you're looking for that we really want the most of. That's where we're going to spend our, our money on. And so I decided, okay, we're going to create this editorial platform called Rob Vices. That newsletter ended up being the the founding editorial voice for a new subscription box that we created. And I sent an email out to our subscribers and uh, a list of some of our top Rob Report readers that had participated in events that we would do routinely. And without any explanation of what this was going to be, we sold out of the first hundred boxes that we had planned. Just boom, just like that. This was in uh, September of 2015. Uh, It was, you know, we were just testing this thing out. And the first box was a story of Brooklyn. I decided that we wanted to theme this box, you know, against the philosophy of how Brooklyn had gone from being one of America's rougher capitals of crime to being the new capital of artisanal chocolate and pickles and wood frame sunglasses and any cool created thing where people who wanted to be makers were now flocking to Brooklyn. And everything that was in that first box had been designed or crafted in Brooklyn by somebody who had left a more traditional job because they wanted to make something and create a business for themselves. So we love that spirit. We wanted to launch this uh, editorial box off of that spirit. And the first box went over very well. We hadn't really figured out the packaging yet at that point, but we 
delivered some wonderful things that told this story of Brooklyn. And then we followed it with a box that had these master dynamic headphones, the MH40s, which are absolutely spectacular, and a bottle of Dolce and uh, artisanal bourbon caramel corn. And it was kind of with those first few boxes that we figured out, this is a really fun gift you can give yourself, an amazing gift you can give somebody else. And it just naturally, people picked up on it. Anytime we'd show this box to people, they'd sign up. It, It became this cool little side project that I had that became my favorite thing to focus on in a few short months and really just put my heart into it. Around that time, my uh, father sold the majority share of the company and it really, Robicourt was no longer a family business. And, uh, you know, with that, there there was a new board and uh, the magazine uh, was going in some new directions and it, it, I really saw this as an opportunity where I could take this little project of mine and build something that was going to be my own. And so I started talking to the board and we negotiated a way that we could spin Rob Vices out as a new company uh, that would be part owned by Rob Report. And uh, we, we licensed the brand. It, it really allowed me to take this little concept that we had and turn it into a a new philosophy for media and a new philosophy for our business and our storytelling. And uh, we we spun it out in the early spring of 2016, and we've been uh, hustling ever since. I um, have a friend who's a super successful guy, owns a bazillion-dollar company, and uh, we were in... I don't remember where we were. We were traveling somewhere. And he said, have you heard of Rob Vices? And I said, Rob Vices, what is it? And he said, you know, the Rob Report, right? And he said, yeah, it's basically, it's the Rob Report in a box. (laughs) I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it comes to you. And he started explaining it to me. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And then I got a chance to meet your dad. And you guys were gracious enough to uh, bring some boxes for us. And one of the things that your dad did was he sabered a bottle of champagne that was um, one of your boxes. And I got to tell you, he nailed it. It was unbelievable. Glad you did me proud. He did you proud. He crushed it. We've got it on video. I could show you. It was absolutely incredible. And then uh, when I got my box, I opened it yesterday with uh, our mutual friend, Chris Harder. Uh, he's in town because his wife is uh, promoting her book. She's on her book uh, launch tour. And I opened for them last night here in Atlanta. And uh, so we had a couple hours. And so we opened up the uh, the Rob Vice's box. And in the box was a, a bottle of Mezcal margarita. Not margarita, tequila. Well, I guess Mezcal isn't it's tequila, mezcal. right? It's Mezcal. Yeah, it's the, the mezcal. illegal Añejo Mezcal. Yeah, it was called illegal. And so we went through and we learned the story about how they smuggled the the mezcal under the, you know, under the car, the, you know, and how we brought it in and and the but not only just the mezcal, but it was the glass that you need to drink the mezcal in. And it's this heavy weighted cool glass. And when you look through it at the bottom of it, you see this cool badass skull at the bottom of it. And I was like, like I can't wait for the next month to come. I mean, this is such a brilliant freaking idea. I love this. Yeah. So again, I like that you're talking about the unboxing experience and it's that discovery Mm -hmm. of one product at a time because that, that is what this is. And to walk 
you know, your listeners through the experience that you have. We very much don't want to be just stuff in a box. This is not a commodity product. This isn't a dollar shave club. This is a monthly discovery of the good life where you're going to be introduced to brands and products and experiences that you would have never have thought of for yourself. But it's curated like the friend that knows you best and that really tries hard to find something that is going to make you smile has just given you this, this cool box. And the stories of the products are incredibly important. With any product, it's going to be a luxury in our life. We need to know why it matters. When you think about the things that you love, there's always a backstory to it. So I find like when you, you find a wine that you love, if you get to meet the winemaker and you know that they're nice people, all of a sudden the wine tastes better. Mm. So that's why we publish a, a magazine that goes with every edition. Uh, that's a digest that's you know very readable. And we take you through how these products are made. Who makes them? Why are they made? Why have we selected these things for you? And why do they matter? And it's also just a whole lot of fun. You're talking about our, our champagne saver box. We think of, you know, what are these moments that we've had that are spectacular, fun, unique, that we want to share with the world? There's nothing like opening up a bottle of champagne with a sword that'll start a party. And so we, we take that. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I'll tell you what's amazing about your your brand model. All you want to do is Instagram it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. All you want to do is go, look at this shit I just got. It's amazing. That's, and that's what I, and that, that's the most fun part of the month for me is just watching Instagram as the, you know, the box hits and just seeing everybody enjoying it and how it's like fitting, feeding into people's lives. Because that's what we're, our mission is to really, you know, create joy, create foster moments of, celebration, give people an excuse to have friends over and have a great time, try something new. And, you know, each box gives you something to do. And it's meant to speak to your spirit of generosity. And I think uh, the most pic- you know, successful picture of a member for us are people who love to entertain, couples who are looking for something to do on a date night in, um, you know, people that are, will come to a party and want to bring something that's going to add to the fun. You know, in uh, September in uh, 2016, you included a uh, a summer house granola that became so popular that summer house got 18,000 orders after it. Is this something that is regularly happening when you unbox something? When you have a good product, what works so well with this model is there's nothing like word of mouth marketing to really create momentum for a brand. And that's really what the, the business is based off yeah, of. Yeah, for sure. Because once, once somebody shares it, they're going to share it with 10 people. Exactly. And you, if you try something where you love it and it's going to fit into your life, you're going to want more. And so some of these products have their own subscriptions. Some of them you're going to buy in quantity. Some products you're going to want to buy you know, four different colors. And then we've had several products where we've had people calling in um, saying, I want to give this to everybody in my company. I need two or 300 units and we'll help you know, facilitate that. Basically, everybody that has participated in this experience with us has said that this has been the best marketing that they've ever done. And that's how we're really able to deliver such incredible value is because uh, the, the collaboration that we work with, you know, the prices that we can get for these things, respect the consumer and what the consumer will end up doing for the life of that brand that is in the box. Absolutely freaking incredible. All right. So I want to switch gears in our remaining time left. And I want to talk about 
another part of your life, which is sort of the play hard part of your life. This show is uh, called Work Hard, Play Hard. So we talked a lot about uh, the kind of work that you're doing now and a little bit about your background, but I want to know a little bit more about the kind of things that you do that adds more fulfillment in your life. So what does a typical Saturday morning look like for you these days? Saturday morning is we're walking to the bagel shop with my three-year-old daughter, my seven-month-old son, and we're sitting down, and my, my beautiful wife, Catherine, we're sitting down over bagels. We live in New York City, and it's actually been a pleasure having young kids in New York City because you can very easily walk to all sorts of things. And my daughter, who at the age of you know one and a half learned that you always have to cheer somebody before drinking anything. She loves to go out and eat. She loves to be a part of the New York lifestyle. And so we're, we're avid diners. You know, we're, we're running around New York City doing everything we can to stay uh, up to trend with the, the new restaurants, which gets a little harder when you have kids. Uh, but we, we very much try to uh, enjoy the city uh, for everything that it gives you uh, on the weekends. I love that. Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, the play hard, I've always been good at that in a, in a lot of ways where, you know, I I feel like travel speaks to me and making quality time with friends is important. It, but I have now come to that point in my life where I'm a, a small business owner. I have a, a young family and the balance is tremendously difficult. And it, it's hard to get home for dinner many nights and... Uh, it's hard to keep your mind off work uh, on the weekend. So even when we're having a bagel on, on Saturday morning, uh, it's now an exercise to keep my mind in the moment, which is really everything that I've built this brand to remind people for. It's a double-edged sword. It really is. I mean, the only trick that I've learned is to just disconnect on Friday night. The moment that I open an email, my brain is shot for the weekends. Yeah. I, and you're absolutely right. The hard thing is, you know, how do you do that when there's nobody else who's going to make that decision if you're not making that decision? And that's what I'm, I'm working on in building my business is, you know, cultivating a great team that can operate and I can step away a little bit. Why I love a great cigar and why I love great whiskey and great tequila is when you're enjoying these things with somebody else, when you're going to sit down and a cigar is a commitment in time. You're going to sit down and put your phone down and talk to the person in front of you and really live in the moment. And I think I, I always loved these vices, these products that we, we include in our box because they give you that. They give you a re- not, not a reason that we don't already have, but it's almost a nudge that you should unplug right now and you should enjoy this in the moment with the person that's right in front of you. And this is when the most you know, valuable moments that we have on a daily basis happen. Yeah. I mean, like if you think about the month that had, you know, chocolate in it, like you can't be sending an email while you're, you know, you're, you're, you're dipping this something in chocolate, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. That's why eating and drinking is important. And frankly, you know, we live in times where, you know, you look at, uh, any news media that you you follow, and it makes you feel like we're we're a divided people. We're we're not a divided people. We are we're very much the same. We love the same things, and all you need to do is to pour a great scotch uh, with somebody to understand that there's more to love about people than there there isn't. 
If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Oh, great question. I'm going to put the place that's in the top of my bucket list that I haven't been yet, uh, which is Japan. If I were to spend a month anywhere, it's a good amount of time to really take a place in and absorb the culture. I love sake. I love Japanese food. And I love the pursuit of perfection that is inherent with Japanese culture and my, my Japanese friends and the way they approach this love, art, and science to everything that they do. So I would, I would travel to Japan and I'd travel that place from top to bottom. Uh, the quiet corners, I'd h- hike the mountains, I'd visit the sake distilleries and take the whole thing in. Have you seen the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi? Oh, yeah. And I was inspired by it. Incredible, right? Incredible documentary. I think it spoke to family businesses incredibly well. It spoke to that passion for perfection. And that that was one of those things is I just like, I have to get to this place and I I need to get to know these people better. By the way, that's the number one answer when I ask that question is Japan. Isn't that interesting? It makes sense. Makes sense. If you could only go to one restaurant before you die, where would your last meal be? Oh, when I was very young, I was taken to the island of Vomo with my family. And on that island, uh, the island was in Fiji. And this was a, a big family vacation for us. And on that island, there was uh, this little shack that served rock lobster right on the water. And they had a, a local band of these wonderful Fijian locals who would sing to us as we ate rock lobster. And they knew my name was Daniel. So anytime we came there during that vacation, they would sing the Elton John song, Daniel, my brother. Yeah. That place has a a special place in my memory. So I'd say that would be the last one. Wow, that's awesome. All right, we're going to wrap up with our rapid fire round of questions. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you'd like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind round. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? My friends would say that my superpower is probably a way of philosophically looking at every moment and finding a way to make it fun and to find happiness. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? I'm afraid of everything that I can't control with my kids and making sure that I'm being the best dad that I possibly can and giving them every opportunity. There is so much when you become a father that becomes out of your hands and all of a sudden the world is influencing these little kids. My, my daughter is now going into preschool and there's a, a whole host of influences out there in the world now that are in front of her. And um, I want her to become... Uh, that, I want her to maintain the happiness that she has. And she's this wonderful, bubbly, joyful kid. And, you know, I, I guess my, my fear is that, you know, there's scary things out there. And I would say most things for myself, I, I don't get afraid of, but I'm afraid of anything that could ever harm this beautiful little girl and my incredible little son. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I have a four-year-old. It's just, um, you, you could not have put it any better. What keeps you up at night? What's going in the next box? <laughs> we, <laughs> That's a great answer. I bet it does. It, I'm, my, my mind is always go, going. You know, we're, we're always jamming and we do work many boxes ahead of time. Uh, but this is one of those things where it, it keeps on coming. And 
with Everbox, we want it to be meaningful and incredible and spectacular. And I'm, I'm always thinking about what is that next moment? What are we doing next? And how can we be doing this better? I'm constantly, you know, my wife, you know, drives her crazy because we just turned out the light. We're about to go to sleep. And I'm like, well, honey, what about this? What are we going to, you know, we need one more product. And she's like, can we just talk about this tomorrow in the morning? She's like, can we just go to sleep, please? Exactly. What is the one thing that you want to get better at? I I couldn't say there's one thing individually that I want to get better at. I want to improve in, you know, every aspect of of running this business. Um, I want to improve in the balance between spending time with my family and diving into work. I I, I think I, I look at everything that I do as an amazing learning experience, but I have a lot to learn and I have a lot to learn. There is a lot that we can accomplish with this incredible, cool business that we have right now. And I want to get it done faster. And I want to continue to attract the best talent to this business and grow this into something that is going to change the way that people consume luxury products and, and consider luxury editorial. It really requires a constant state of, state of uh, reinvention for myself. So I've got to keep my eyes and ears open. What book have you reread the most? Death Comes for the Archbishop by Willa Cather, which is kind of a, an interesting book to reread because it's a, a slow rolling epic about these clergymen in the early 1800s in America, you know, in like the, the border states, trying to clean up the church and the adventures that they have. And it's this absolutely beautifully written book that for me, the the importance of it is at the end. At the end, they have this, you know, they've had this amazing lifetime of adventure going through Arizona and New Mexico and, you know, on foot and on horseback. And as they're in their, their aging years, uh, one of the clergymen reflects that people are moving faster now. They're on trains and people are getting to go to places further. And he says this line, People are traveling faster now, but I'm not sure that they're traveling to better places. Mm. And that line has just haunted me. And I, I think I, mean, I have this spirit of invent- adventure in me that I feel is reflected in this book. And I've always had this fear of globalization killing the things that I love and these unique places and the massive corporations uh, and the products that they put out creating an environment where it's going to be hard for people to create artisanal, beautiful luxury products. That line has kind of spoke to me in a way where I feel like we need to raise up the people that make their local communities a richer, more vibrant place by the way that they make things. And that's exactly what people do. It's what the distillers uh, in each, oh, and the craft brewers and the wineries uh, all around, you know, these beautiful United States are doing with the things that they create. They're making their hometown a more vibrant, dynamic place, and they're making places an interesting place to go. And they're they're creating a sense of place uh, with with their products. And you can say the same thing for leather workers and people who, um, you know, make 
glass goods and metal workers. When you make something, it, it has an imprint on your place. And I think that's really important. Awesome. If you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for, so we're going to pull Rob Vices out of it, or nothing that you speak about, and it can really be on anything that you like to do or anything that you have a passion for, what would it be on? Tell me if this is a, an answer that, that doesn't fit the question because uh, we very much cover wine and spirits in Rob Vices, but um, I, I, love, I love wine and I love tequila and whiskey and gin and vodka. And I'm painting myself as the ultimate lush but <laughs> I, I really do love the people that make these things. And if I were to give a TED talk, it would probably be about how people that make beautiful things make the world a more beautiful place because we, we need to make things that foster moments of celebration and togetherness. And if you're going to go into making beer if you're, you're going to go into making wine, it's, you're doing it out of love. And what I've seen in this, th these industries is that, you know, people, they chase a buck for a while and then they decide, you know what, I'm going to do something that I, I really love. And they then go into to making a spirit. One of my best examples um, is uh, one of my very good friends is the owner of Clase Zul Tequila. His name's Arturo. Uh, he is one of the warmest, most incredible people I've ever met. And he loves what he does. And he loves the people that make his bottles in, in Mexico, the Mazaqua natives that actually hand sculpt these bottles. And there is a deep joy in absolutely everything that he does. And there's a deep joy when you see people enjoying his tequila and spending time with him, visiting his distillery, uh, sharing his tequila with, with my friends. I think about these connections that the world has. And there, it's all about what, what can we build? What can we do that allows us to be more generous? And you look at a guy like Arturo, who just so genuinely loves the fact that he's making this beautiful tequila and has pride when he sees people enjoying it. And you look at the people who are enjoying it with um, smiles on their faces, their eyes, you know, delighted that they're, they're sipping something special. And that is a picture for success in anything that we do is to create something that that's beautiful, that people can share. And if I were to give a Ted talk, I'd say, what is it that we're doing in our lives that is allowing us to, to feel that way? It's allowing us to create something for the place where it's being made and allowing us to put something into the world that people can share, to feel more generous, and to have more moments of celebration. And I, I point at these industries. Yeah. I love this, but one of the best answers I've ever heard. You know, there's three things that are hit, that's hitting me as we wrap here. One is that the sense of community that you um, are, are so strongly connected to, my hunch is that it was formed um, in your youth in Malibu your creation of Rob Vices largely, I believe, may have come out of your sculpture background because that's effectively what you're, what you're doing. It's like you're sculpting these boxes and, and sort of your awareness of wealth 
and happy and wealth and unhappy and tying that to generosity, it comes back to Rob Vice's literally in a box. So it's like I'm piecing all of this together. Did, did I hit any of that right? I think you hit that all spot on. And I mean, there's, there's also part of it going back to the start of our conversation, you know, growing up with a, a father like Bill Curtis in Malibu, you know, and being associated with the Rappaport brand. I had an early look at what the good life was in, in form of products and experiences. And my father had this philosophy uh, before I, uh, you know, I went, went to college. He uh, sat me down and the first whiskey that I ever tasted was Johnny Walker Blue Label. The first wine that I ever tasted was a 1997 Opus One. I knew you were going to say that. And (laughs) (laughs) I knew, I I literally said Opus, Opus, Opus. I know he's going to say Opus. (laughs) So, I mean, I know people are listening to this thinking like, oh man, this spoiled punk. But my my father's philosophy was, Daniel, I want you to understand, you know, what quality is. And you should always choose quality over quantity. And his, you know, his perspective was he was going to get me, you know, hooked on the kinds of things where if I'm drinking, I'm only going to want to drink the best. So I'm not going to be able to afford the ability to overdo it. He, you know, underestimated my ability to be uh, scrappy and to find ways of matching quantity and quality at the same time. But all of that, you know, growing up and getting a sense of these things and having early access, it allowed me to be the guy in my friend's group where they would always hand me the wine list, say, Daniel, what are we drinking tonight? Or uh, we'd go to a bar and they'd say, Daniel, you know, you, you pick the cocktails, you, you pick what it was. So I, I kind of created that identity for myself where I got to be the guy that, that knew about the cool stuff and knew about these fun things. And so it, you know, that has always kind of been in, in my spirit and how I, I'm able to share things with people around me. And so what I love is that I've now been able to build a business for myself where I still get to be the guy that discovers something cool and shares it with all of my friends. And I'm now sharing that with a broader audience. I'm sharing that with people who I don't know yet, but I'm able to find those cool discoveries and share them with the world. Absolutely love it. What Last question. What one question would you like to ask me? Change it up a little bit. You spend your life and your time focusing on that balance between working hard and playing hard. Yep. Do you ever find that the answer is not, you know, work hard is something that you love? Because that is what I, I would say the obvious answer is the, the, the solution is to make sure that whether you're working hard or playing hard, making sure that you're, you love. Is there any time that that is not the answer? Yes, only, I, I think there's a different shade of that because I get that one asked a lot. So I was talking to, do you know who Tom Bilyeu is? I don't. Okay, so he he made a company, uh, he just sold a company called Quest. Uh, you know the uh, protein bars, Quest? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we had this conversation and he's wildly passionate about his company. He exited for, I don't know, three, four, five hundred million dollars. It was something crazy. And he immediately went right back to work and he went right back to work, not for the money because he was absolutely passionate about what he did. So we have a slight difference opinion, difference of opinion on that. And here's, here's the challenge. Even if you absolutely love what it is that you're doing, it's very, very easy to become super myopic and only focus on work 
if that's what you love. And there's so much more to life. All these amazing things that we're talking about, you know, traveling around the world and spending time with, time with your children so that you're making a massive impact on their life, which creates the ripple effect. And they go out and they do great things. Um, reading and art and, you know, all of those other things. It's so easy to be one-dimensional doing something that you love because you get so many of your needs met by working on that. And I would caution that it's a good idea from my perspective to look at all the other areas of your life and make sure that you're putting momentum into those areas, even though you love work as much as you do. And also, I think you get more inspiration when you are disconnecting from work and you come back to work, like if you took that month off or two weeks off or whatever it is, when you come back to work, you come back with new perspective and new ideas because you've extracted yourself from your familiar day-to-day. All right. I think you're spot on right there. And it's definitely something that I need to work on. It's a challenge. It's a challenge because when you, you know, look, there's seasons of life, right? You know, you've got small kids, you're starting the company, um, so you're in that season of making sure you do it. I'm just saying that that bar doesn't stop moving. So if the goal is a million bucks a year, you hit it. Now it's three million, then it's five million, then it's a hundred million, and it just never stops. So you have to take the time. And the way I do it is by I just have hard limits of things that I do. I'm a little bit aggressive about it. I make sure at four o'clock that there is no work, that it's done, and that my time every night is with my four year olds. And it's family movie night. It's we play a board game. We um, we have dinner together, and she also does uh, cheers. We used to call it sippy cup cheers. And I just make sure that I've got that time, and I just say, you know what? I, I'm sure that you know maybe, maybe I could work until eight if I want, but and maybe I'm going to make a hundred thousand less this year. But I don't give a shit because I want to make sure that I've got this time because I also have a twenty year old daughter. And I didn't do that with my 20-year-olds. And I don't want to make that mistake now. I was just working. And I just don't want to make that mistake now with this one. So I just set hard limits to make sure that I address those other areas of my life. Yeah. And all right, all right. I, I think you're, you're spot on. And you clearly have turned this into a muscle. And it has to be exercised. Mm, that's a good way to put it. It is a muscle. It is so, a muscle. I've got a few more questions. You mind if I do my own rapid fire round? You can rapid fire away. So tying, tying to, to my world of, of vices, what is your definition of the good life? The good life for me is being able to do what I want with who I want when I want. So for example, my day is set up such that between nine and noon every day, other than Fridays where I do podcast interviews, um, is mine. And I wake up, I meditate, I work out, I go for a walk with the dog, um, I hang out with the wife, um, I journal. I read every day. Um, at noon, I do a work block between noon and four, and that's my focus time. Four o'clock, I come home. It's uh, the family until uh, baby goes to sleep. And then the evening time is a glass of wine, decompress, um, talk about goals, future, things like that with the wife. And uh, I make sure that I've got built into the year eight weeks of travel. Um, some of it I do with my mastermind. Like this year, we're doing... Mykonos, Greece, St. Petersburg, Russia. Going back to Italy, we're doing truffle hunting in Italy. So I, I'm, nice. I'm a big, yeah, I'm a big experience guy. So with the mastermind, everything is around experiences. So we're going to go to the Ferrari factory in Italy. We're going to race Ferraris through Tuscany. 
going to do truffle hunting. When we go to St. Petersburg, we're going to do it during white nights, which it doesn't get dark until 11 o'clock at night. And then the, the sun rises again at, uh, at 3 a.m. There's a lot of parties around it. And I got 25 people that I'm going with. So I've got a mix of travel that I do with um, from a mastermind. And I've got travel that I do just on my own. In two weeks, we're going to Tel Aviv. Uh, always wanted to do that. Haven't done that. Um, and we take our four-year-old everywhere. She's been to 15 countries already. So that's for me, that's a good life. That, that is a good life. And <laughs> so you mentioned, you mentioned wine in there. Yep. What is, it doesn't have to be wine. It could be, it could be a, a glass of anything, uh, a beer, a, a scotch, a, a tequila. What was the singular greatest sip that you've had? What was it and where were you sitting? I was in Tuscany with my friend Darren White, who is a very cultured guy in the way that we've been sort of defining it. And he ordered a Barolo. And in fairness, I did not develop my palate at all for wine. So I would, like, I was the guy years ago that just said, I'll have a glass of red. I didn't even know anything about it. And I saw sort of his reaction to it. And I was like, well, what would you order? And he said, I would get this Barolo. And I said, why? And then he explained the Nebbiola grapes. And then um, we went through sort of an education about it. And I took my first sip. And in that moment, I knew I was screwed because I knew that the bottle of wine that I was going to order from that point forward was going to be different. So that would be the one that was the most memorable when I got, when I got schooled on it. Oh, yeah. All right. And what is your, your greatest vice? Probably first class air. <laughs> yeah. I'm a diva that way. I hate sitting in the back of the bus. It kills me. It, it is certainly better that way. <laughs> I got to tell you, man, I had, uh, unfortunately, I had the privilege when I was younger of being a passenger on a, a private jet a good, a good few times. And I've got to work very hard to get back there. <laughs> I've never had, I've never been on one. I've always don't, wanted don't to. Don't do it. Don't do I, it. I can only imagine, you know, I went with, um, my, one of my, my 20 year old's daughter, my 20 year old daughter has a friend. Um, her father is, um, much, much older gentleman, um, owns a steel company, a lot of money. And, when she was probably about 14, we took her on a trip with us. We were going to like the Caribbean or something. And I could see that as we're getting on the plane, she's looking around, she's having this like sort of weird reaction to where we are. And she's like, well, why are there so many people on the plane? (laughs) And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, there's just so many people. And I said, well, how many people are on the plane when you fly? She said, well, it's me, my dad, my mom, and there's like maybe one or two other people. And it, like very soon I realized that she's only flew private and we were the first time she flew coach. She was freaked out, like didn't even, like didn't know where she was. You know? Yeah, it's hard to, hard to call back up from that. <laughs> well, damn, man, I, I absolutely, this was better than I thought it was going to be. You are such an interesting guy. I am such a fan of you, your dad, what your company is doing, what you stand for. Um, and I am so excited to share this with the world. Absolutely, Rob. Very much a pleasure to jam with you a little bit today and uh, look forward to more conversations in the future. 
All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.